Welcome to Co-op Energy Talk. I'm Rachel Johnson, the Member Relations Manager at Cherryland Electric Cooperative. And with me today is our General Manager, Tony Anderson. Welcome, Tony. Good morning. Happy to be here again. Many of our members may not realize that in addition to guiding the ship here at Cherryland, Tony serves as Michigan's representative on the National Rural Electric Cooperative Association Board of Directors, otherwise known as NRECA. Correct. NRECA is the national service organization for more than 900 rural electric cooperatives like Cherryland that provide electric service to over 42 million members in 47 states. So a big impact nationally and certainly a big footprint nationally. In June, the NRECA board appointed a new chief executive officer from uh, former Utah Congressman Jim Matheson. And Jim has graciously agreed to sit down with us today and tell us a little bit more about himself and the future of NRECA. So welcome to the podcast, Jim. Well, thank you. I'm really excited to participate. We're very happy to have you, too, and appreciate you taking the time. We know you're very busy. So to kick us off, why don't you just give us a little bit of your background? Well, sure. Uh, As was mentioned, I'm from the state of Utah. I'm uh, sixth-generation Utah, actually, and uh, born and raised there. Um, and my uh, my career path after I uh, got a, a graduate degree, uh, an MBA, I went into the uh, energy business. Actually, uh, joined a company in the independent power business, and I was a uh, project development manager. And uh, my uh, primary successes there were a couple of 85 megawatt um, natural gas fired cogeneration plants uh, in southern Nevada. And um, just a great experience to uh, be involved in managing the development of a project, negotiating uh, uh, power sales agreement, fuel supply agreement, interconnection agreements, uh, managing, you know, uh, environmental consultants to go through the permitting process. The project, one of them was on federal land. That created a whole new issue of environmental permitting uh, challenges. Um, And uh, it was just a great uh, way to uh, learn a lot about how... um, uh, power production facilities are, are 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 developed, are constructed, and how they fit into the system, and uh, and that was my first uh, energy experience right out of uh, business school, um, and then I moved on to a, a different application outside the independent power business. I joined a um, small consulting firm. There were six of us. Uh, that represented large consumers of energy. You know, this was back in the late 80s, early 90s when, uh, um, you know, natural gas had just been deregulated for larger consumers. And um, that was a new world for a lot of uh, uh, different industrial entities that uh, uh, weren't in the business or had a competency for going out and buying gas supply and arranging for transportation and dealing with hedging price risk. And so we formed a a co-op, a natural gas purchasing co-op of a number of users of natural gas, wide range of companies from anything from a meat packing plant to a hospital chain. And, um, and I got to manage that co-op and uh, uh, arrange for the supply agreements, the transportation agreements. Uh, I implemented price. We do some hedging for price risk. Um, and it was a really great experience and I guess my first experience actually in a co-op environment. Um, at that, after doing that for a, a few years, I moved on to uh, uh, the political world and ran for Congress uh, and was elected uh, in Utah and served seven terms, 14 years in the U.S. House of Representatives. Um, great experience, uh, learned a lot, served on the Financial Services Committee and then served on the Energy and Commerce Committee in the House of Representatives. Um, it, again, just a great opportunity to serve our country. I, I, I valued it very much. 
Uh, and yet after 14 years, I decided it was time to do something else. And so I, I, I left the United States Congress uh, at the end of my seventh term, joined an advocacy uh, organization, a uh, large law firm. I went in their government relations and advocacy practice in uh, in uh, Washington, D.C. I'm not a lawyer personally, by the way, but I was part of their lobbying team and uh, represent a wide range of different uh, clients uh, uh, in both the executive branch and the legislative branch. And uh, at some point, the announcement came out that there was a search uh, ongoing for uh, the CEO position at for the National Rural Electric Cooperative Association. And I uh, uh, always thought that a trade association was a, if it was the right one, would be something I'd be very interested in, 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 in working with. And uh, when I heard about the opportunity for the uh, Rural Electric Co-op Association, um, I got very excited because my relationship with electric co-ops had been such a very positive relationship and i i should mention that when i was in congress i i i had a i i had the opportunity and privilege to represent all of the co-op service territories in the state of utah and got to know all of the co-ops in utah as a result and uh... the 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 people running those various co-ops and their employees became uh, very important advisors if you will to my congressional operation because beyond uh, issues important to the electric co-op community, I learned that the folks involved in the electric co-ops really knew their own communities well. And I was always looking as an elected official to understand and be the best representative I could be of folks. And I found that uh, folks in the co-op world were just such great uh, sources of, of perspective and information about what's going on in their community and what people are thinking and 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 what issues are on their mind and so I developed this really strong relationship with 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 the various co-op folks in Utah during my time in Congress and so again when the NRECA position opened up it was something that I thought would be a wonderful opportunity uh, it was a very rigorous search process and as I went through that process. Uh, every step of the way, I got more and more excited about the opportunity to be part of the co-op uh, community and uh, never saw a red flag. The whole time I was going through the process, it gave me any That's sense great. of uh, this is not exactly the right thing I should do. And the board uh, selected me, and it's been a real honor and privilege to... Uh, to assume this position, and uh, and that's what got me to where I am today. Cool. And in Utah, the the prominent uh, electric service providers are investor-owned utilities, if I'm not mistaken. So the co-ops don't serve a huge portion of the state, yet you gravitated towards the co-ops. Did you not get a pull from the investor-owned utilities in the state, or how did how did you manage that relationship? Well, you know, it's uh, you know, when you're an elected official and you represent, you know, seven or eight hundred thousand constituents, there, there are a lot of different, there are a lot of different constituencies out there, and of course, I, I knew uh, uh, the the investor-owned utility in this case is Rocky Mountain Power, and and then I had a lot of there are a lot of municipal utilities that were in my that I represented as well, various cities that had their own municipal utilities, so it kind of went across the board, but but the the common thread that went between the municipals and the uh, and, and the co-ops in terms of sort of the public power community is in, out there. There's there's federal power through the federal hydropower system. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and I represent a lot of rural Utah. So in terms of land mass, I really did um, have a lot of the public power entities more so than the investor-owned okay. utility. I mean, so I had a relationship with all three, but my district was primarily rural. Okay. Now, microgrids is a hot topic today. And you have some experience with some small generation. And now you're you're managing uh, an industry, really, that has 
that is on the grid, that is a large-scale grid-connected. What's your opinion of microgrids and uh, I guess the overall grid in general? How do they relate together? Well, I'm going to answer this. I have to give you the caveat. I'm not an engineer, so I, uh, but, I, but I do think uh, um, it's important for an industry that, quite frankly, has been uh, rather uh, stable in one context for decades. Uh, there are some changes coming. Technology is driving some different choices, if you will, uh, for how electricity is uh, generated and delivered and consumed uh, in an individual household or business or location. And I think that the important role for the cooperative community, which has always, I think, been the important role for the cooperative community, is we're there to represent the member interest, we represent the person at the end of the line. And in this case, we want to be the, uh, the trusted advisor, if you will, that really helps our members make the best decisions. Now they have this new menu of choices opening up for them. Um, it's important for us to be um, substantively uh, knowledgeable about the different options that are out there. It's important for us as a co-op community to make good decisions, to have a certain integrity to the to the delivery system that our that our members uh, are utilizing to make sure that they have it's the same motivation we've always had safe, affordable, reliable power. Uh, I don't think um, I'm here to tell you as CEO of NRECA that I have a bias that we should pursue choice X or choice Y or choice Z. What I think I should do, representing over 900 co-ops around the country, is advocate the notion that co-ops are there to serve their members, that their members are facing new choices, and I want to have those members uh, uh, I want to have those members believe that their own co-op is the best source of information to go to help them navigate those choices. And, and that's what we're trying to do with this podcast as well. And, and obviously, most of the listeners to this podcast are Cherryland Electric Cooperative members in uh -huh. northern Michigan. Why should these members care who the NRECA CEO is? Well, I uh, I think that the the answer is is that uh, you know there's strength in the fact that. Over 950 co-ops around the country have chosen to affiliate in one organization uh, with 42 million members ultimately served by those co-ops, by the way, uh, an organization that's going to advocate on behalf of the co-op community. Uh, and specifically, uh, what NRECA is, there, there are a number of functions at NRECA, but specifically NRECA um, uh, is very active in providing um, uh, employee benefits programs in terms of, uh, for many, many co-ops, uh, uh, health insurance, defined benefit pension plans, and 401k plans for uh, the co-op community. Uh, NRECA is also uh, the the fundamental and, in, in some sense, the only so, uh, point of contact for advocacy for federal policy agenda. Mm -hmm. um, it's where NRECA has cut its teeth. It's been around for, we're coming up on our 75th year anniversary as an organization, and NRECA has been the voice of the electric co-op community in the federal world, and whether it's in the legislative branch, whether it's in the executive branch. Um, uh, it's important to have a voice because decisions that get made in the policy world in Washington, for good or for bad, <laughs> the decisions that get made there have an impact on folks throughout the country. And um, NRECA has a remarkably positive reputation it as did. being a credible, forceful entity when it comes to advocating on behalf of its members. And um, 
you know, I'm I'm assigned to run this organization and make sure it's as effective as it can be and make sure that it always stays true to its ultimate mission, which is to serve our member interests in the best way we can. Sure. You had an interesting Michigan connection on your resume. You listed Fred Upton as a reference. Explain that to our listeners. Well, uh, of course, Fred Upton, longtime congressman from uh, Michigan, uh, I got the opportunity to serve with Fred for a number of years, and specifically uh, on the House Energy and Commerce Committee, of which he is the chairman of that committee. So he was my committee chairman, um, uh, got to work with him on a number of issues closely, um, and it's uh, uh, an indication also of the fact that uh, you know my role in Congress was really one of working effectively with folks on both sides of the aisle. I, I, I believe that to get things done, uh, we got to get away from this partisan ideological uh, polarization that, that forces so much gridlock in Congress, and it certainly was never my style to buy into that. And, um, and, I, and I think that my track record of working with folks on both sides and getting things done is, is something I'm real proud of. And, and the relationship with Fred was a very, uh, had, had, when I was in Congress, was just a very productive relationship working together to get things done. And so um, a good congressman and a good friend, and that's why it, it's someone I'm, I'm pleased to be associated with. Great. And Congressman Upton has been a good friend to Michigan's electric cooperatives as well. So that that relationship doesn't just start at the national level; it filters all the way down into impacting kind of our member at the end of the line. Yeah, absolutely, it does. The lights have obviously been on since the 1930s. How do electric co-ops remain relevant today? Well, ultimately, I think that uh, it, it, it comes a little bit to the the, the topic uh, we were talking about earlier with the microgrids. I think that co-ops uh, have a critical role to play in terms of how, number one, at the policy level, we we advocate because we are truly the voice of consumers. You know, uh, the other utility, electricity and utility providers in this country, they have shareholder and investor concerns and and other. Uh, other interests guiding their decision making, but co-ops are purely focused on what's right for the consumer, and that puts co-ops in a wonderful position, in my opinion, to be a leading voice when it comes to setting energy policy in this country. Now that's at the Washington end, but I also want to answer your question from from the member end, the guy at the end of the line, and in that sense. It, 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 it's a similar answer. Uh, this is a member-owned, member-driven organization that's going to act in the best interest of the consumer. And I think that whatever happens in terms of technology changes, and, and there, there are a lot of technology changes happening, as we discussed, I still think that um, anybody, any other entity out there advocating different types of services for electricity has a whole different set of motivations, whereas the co-op motivation is singularly what's right for the member. So I think that whatever happens in terms of technological advances and changes in policy and regulation, at the end of the day, the, the, the member-driven co-op model serves a, a, a very high purpose, if you will. And co-ops are always, I think, going to be relevant and important to their members. And by the way, I believe if you look at, and there's all kinds of studies where we've looked at uh, brand loyalty uh, for their individual co-op, that uh, the members across the country really value their relationship with their co-op uh, much higher than folks who have other utility, electricity providers. And so that tells you that there's a connection and a, and a value with that association that I think is going to stand the test of time across any technological changes that happen. What do you think, uh, congressmen sitting on the Hill, how, how do they value the co-ops? The co-ops go to Congress on a regular basis to lobby. 
Is there still power in that grassroots boots on the ground lobby on Capitol Hill today? Well, I, I I think there's no question there is, and 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 again, I think where co-ops have an advantage over all the other uh, um, electricity providers, and quite frankly, an advantage over most other entities trying to affect policy and lobby in, in Washington is we do have this grassroots network of 42 million people who are served by electric co-ops in 47 states. You know, it really we reflect an important, significant. Uh, segment of across America, and members of Congress and people working the federal agencies know that about the co-ops. Beyond that, the co-ops have this reputation for always um, having their substance and their knowledge at a high level, and also always speaking with integrity. It's a reputation that goes back to the first, you know, the first head of the National Rural Electric Co-op Association, Clyde Ellis. That was one of his fundamental. Um, uh, guideposts, if you will, in terms of how he wanted this organization to engage in policy was, uh, and I remember reading a quote from Clyde where he said, you know, members of Congress uh, may disagree with us at times, and sometimes they will, but we want to always respect our substance of ability and our integrity. And and, and that reputation is carried through to this day. So um, the, the notion that we speak with authority, we speak with integrity, and we represent 42 million people across the country is a really, really powerful combination. So the respect that the co-ops have on Capitol Hill, I think, is as high as it's ever been. A shameless plug here for Acre. Uh, one of the things that we're really excited about here at Cherryland is that we, a couple of years ago, started inviting our co-op members to contribute to our national PAC, Acre. And we have several hundred members who do. And I think it's important for those members to understand that they're a part of that when when they're making their contribution, that money is then money that's being used to help build the relationships in Washington that then we're leveraging when we come in and do our visits as well. Well, there's no question. And what's really neat about the political action committee that's run for the co-ops and Acre is the is is the name of the of the of the of the, of the PAC, which I think stands for Action Committee for Rural Electrification. Um, What's what's amazing about Acre compared to any other political action committee in Washington is how we have such wonderful, broad, grassroots participation in how that PAC is funded. Uh, it really shows this member-driven commitment at the grassroots level. And so when 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 Acre participates in in supporting campaigns of various folks running for office. Um, it, they know that this is a different kind of check than they normally get. It's not just a pack from some, uh, you know, company where a few high-dollar donations have come in to help fund their pack. It really represents members across the country, a lot of members across the country participating. So I think, in some respects, acre pack contributions uh, are more meaningful than anybody else's when it comes to when a member receives one. And I should also mention on Acre that, you know, Acre funds uh, campaigns at the federal level. It also, you know, there are statewide Acre programs across the country. The co-op community is very active in both federal and state politics as well. Yeah. little sidebar, but I've been a co-op employee somewhere in the country since I was the age of 21. And mm -hmm. i got to tell you, it makes me happy to to know that you're three weeks on the job and you're already quoting Clyde Ellis, the first CEO of NRECA. <laughs> so thank you for that. Um, recently, NRECA started an initiative. It's called, they call it the Telling Our Story Initiative. Can you explain that a little bit? 
Uh, boy, this is one where being on the job for three weeks, I'm not sure uh, that I am the best one to answer that question. But I think that the the the, the motivation behind this, after after going through a, a strategic planning process, is that we have a uh, you know there's a turnover. You know, there there we have new co- new members uh, joining co-ops, new members moving into co-op areas, and and as much as uh, as powerful as the as the co-op. The electric co-op history has been, and as meaningful and valuable as it's been to its members, it's important to um, to to tout that fact. And for new, you know, as we have turnover in workforce and turnover in in, in our ultimate consumer members, it's important that uh, that they have that information about the legacy of what co-ops have meant. And so that's that's one of the motivations of telling the co-op story because it's such a it's such a powerful story, and it's really important for all of us to know that story because it keeps us. Uh, it keeps us all on, on sort of in that mindset of what the co-op principles are all about, about about how co-ops support each other in this member-driven, democratically elected entities, and 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 and, and I think that that's one of the big motivations of the co-op story. Quite frankly, another benefit of this of, of the co-op story is it it helps it helps. Um, advance our advocacy agenda when it comes to the policy world. Uh, I think co-ops have a great story to tell. They're a consumer-driven entity that is all about the end, the end of the line consumer, and uh, I think telling that story really helps us in terms of our advocacy efforts in the political world as well. Mm-hmm. And for the first time ever, Enrique had employees at the uh, political conventions. I, I know you weren't there, but you had staff there. Can you share what what did we learn at the conventions? What what did they do there? They were at the Republican and the Democratic National Convention. Well, in in both cases, uh, the co-ops participated in 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 some in some panel discussions on both energy policy and rural policy. Um, there was an opportunity to try to um, uh, meet with. Uh, several elected officials in both parties of the two conventions. Um, it's really, uh, you know, developing that opportunity to engage and have face time and really talk to different folks. Um, and that was really the, the fundamental objective. And, and from all reports I've gotten, um, the, uh, folks who participate in that at both conventions thought it was a very positive experience. Mm-hmm. What's your thoughts on a 47-member board? Of directors from all st- from forty seven different states. Well, I think I think what unique. it does is it, it allows the it allows the governing function of the National Rural Electric Co-op Association. It allows that function to really reflect the depth and breadth of its membership. You know, uh, we are in forty seven states. It's a, it's a, it's a powerful component to NRECA that we represent such a diverse set of of, of uh, geographic regions, different perspectives. So um, I think I think uh, um, it's it's a large number relative to what boards of directors are of various organizations. But I think it's uh, I think in this case it's worked and served this organization exceptionally well. You know, we break it up for different issue areas into committees within that board. So it's not like all 47 sit in on every discussion on every issue. Uh, there are efficiencies created by creating different committees within that board that are smaller numbers to really dig into different policy areas. And so I think there's a history of this board of uh, of, of, uh, of a productive very productive uh, set of exercises, uh, despite the fact that 47 may be a larger number than some people think would be ideal. Uh, everything I've heard in my experience has been it works really well. Yeah, from my experience, it has too. I've been on the board about eight years now. 
when you look at your diverse background, politics, energy, what prepared you for this job the most? Well, it's, it, I, I, I'm, I'm going to give you the the answer where there may be more than one thing I said, <laughs> but but I think I think that the, the key factor here is I, I think that um, you know uh, there, the politics and policy side and advocacy side of the National Rural Electronic uh, excuse me National Rural Cooperative Association I think that they uh, um, that's clearly one of the key factors of this organization, but this is also a business. You know, this is this is an aid that's running important employee benefit programs. Um, it's an important part of where this trade association provides value to its members. And the fact that I have a background that's both been in the in the in the business sector and in the political and public policy sector, I think is what really benefits me the most because those two worlds have overlap and similarities, and those two worlds have to interact with each other. But in other respects, those are different worlds. <laughs> you know, the, the political world just behaves sometimes differently than the business world. And so I think that that combination of experience that I've had historically um, gives me a, a really helpful perspective in terms of navigating the various um, objectives and challenges that the, that the Rural Cooperative Association likes to take on every day. And thinking about those ob- objectives and challenges you you were in congress for 14 years i can't hardly let you off the podcast with asking what you think about the upcoming election and our two candidates and <laughs> well I, i'll i'll say i'll say a few things uh, uh first of all of course nreca does not has not taken any position uh in the presidential race nor does the organization intend to um we are in the process of reaching out already to the issue folks in both of those presidential campaigns. Uh, so whichever one is elected, we want to be involved as a resource for information when it comes to issues of importance to this organization, and that's our role. I think that NRACA, by the way, uh, should not only not be perceived as a partisan organization, uh, we should we should pursue not even being bipartisan, but really nonpartisan. Because I think that gives us strength. We're prepared to work with anybody who wants to hear about our story and 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 our consumer-driven focus on how to serve our members. Now, specifically, you asked a question about this this election season. Look, this is a a highly volatile time in American politics. Um, uh, you see a certain uh, level of uh, populist movement affecting folks on both the right and the left, in my opinion. And we've had waves of population, populism that kind of ebbs and flows throughout our country's history. And it's happened. There's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a decent populist wave going on right now in America. And quite frankly, it's going on in different places around the world. Um, and I think that characterizes this election in some ways, where there's a lot of different points of view out there and more of a, but this populist movement is raising questions about Big institutions. Uh, you, you hear the, almost the same rhetoric and comments from folks on the right and the left questioning big business, uh, Wall Street, and so I think that's a different environment in this election than maybe what we've seen uh, in the last few elections. What's interesting to bring it back to the co-op world is I think we're so well positioned to be an important voice in that type of environment because it comes back to what I said earlier. We're a consumer-oriented, consumer-driven, member-owned organization. That's what co-ops are. So I think uh, we respond well to this populist 
uh, wave that is that is t- going on in this country right now, as I said, on both sides of the ideological spectrum. I think the co-ops are positioned really well to be there. Uh, so that's, you know, my, my focus. I look through the lens of what's right for co-ops. That's my job. And, uh, and I think that we have an opportunity, however this volatile political season plays out, to be a really important, credible voice in terms of pursuing our agenda. Yeah, I, I agree. Well said. Well, and I, we want to be, you know, cognizant of your time, Jim. We can't thank you enough for joining us. And the thing that is that I'm taking away from this conversation is that while there are challenges, both politically, our industry is changing, technology is driving change. Ultimately, the core of what the co-ops do and who we are is is still strong and is well positioned to not just um, survive but thrive with within these challenges. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that because that's really I, I I think that's always important for us to acknowledge the strength of of the structure and the motivation of the co-op community is is what we need to embrace and yes we've got to be aggressive in seeking out opportunities and making sure we're uh, addressing issues that come before us but if we we got to have some we we got to always come back to that touchstone that we we come from this perspective and model that I think is going to serve our members at the end of the day very well and and that's what gives me a lot of optimism for the future Absolutely. So on that note, before we let you off the hook, how about we do fun facts? Tony, you want to kick us off? Sure. My fun fact comes from the book Power Plays by Ted Case. So I got to give him credit for that. And I I think I've maybe mentioned this before, but on May 11th, 1935, only 10% of the farms had electricity in the country. Sanitation was primitive. Medical care was sparse. Infant mortality rates were high. And so on that day, FDR signed the executive order 7 037, establishing the Rural Electrification Administration. So my fun fact is, what did he do on that day after he pinned that order, knowing that uh, 5 million farms needed to be electrified? And the answer to that question is, he went fishing on the West Virginia-Maryland border (laughs) with the vice president and the Speaker of the House. Always Always good to do a little fishing. Jim, did you bring a fun fact for us? Um, wow. Um, I, uh, I'm going to have to come up with one here. Uh, I guess, I guess the fun fact, I don't know how fun this is, but I can just tell you in the history, 75, almost 75 year history of the National Rural, National Rural Electric Cooperative Association, um, there've only been six people who have been the head of that organization and I am number six. And I guess I am the first one, uh, from, uh, west of, uh, of Missouri, where my predecessor, uh, Joanne, is from Missouri. And so uh, um, this is an organization that's had a long level of stability, and uh, in 75 years, I'm just the sixth person to head it up. And our members heard from the first one, Clyde Ellis, and the current one today. So you bookended it well. (laughs) Well, I think that's a good thing. (laughs) It is. So I have an NRECA fun fact as well. Um, the the start of NRECA actually emerged out of concern during World War II that electric cooperatives, a lot of electric cooperatives would be accused of hoarding copper wire. And so across the country, they were defending themselves against this accusation. And they realized in 1942 that it made sense to join together and essentially create a, a national um, organization to have a unified voice for cooperatives and to represent their interest in Washington, D.C. And as you've said several times today, Jim, 75 years later, still working hard on our behalf. So thank you so much for joining us. This has been great. Yeah, we very much appreciate it. We know how busy you are. Oh, listen, I enjoyed it too, and I'm looking forward to coming visit you there. Great.